The first reading is taken chapter 4 of the letter to the Philippians, which you'll find on page 1180. 1180 in the church Bibles. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, you as Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. You are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you keep the Bibles open, please, at page 1180, Philippians chapter 4. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, which is so relevant to us today. Wherever we've come from, whatever our current situation, we thank you 
that you can speak to us. And I simply pray that by your mighty Holy Spirit, you would speak to each one of us in this church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, here are, uh, here's a quotation from one of Charles Dickens' characters. Cheerfulness and contentment are great beautifiers and are famous preservers of youthful looks. Much better and much cheaper than all those anti-aging creams. And here's a question. How would you complete the following statement? My life would be perfect if only. We're looking today at the secret of contentment, a topic that could not be more relevant. We are bombarded with advertisements, journals, magazines, all encouraging us to be dissatisfied with what we've got, to think that there is more just round the corner that will make life perfect. And Christians are not immune from this. In his book, The Greener Grass Conspiracy, American writer Stephen Altroger describes a conspiracy between the world, our hearts, and Satan to steal our happiness. He calls it the greener grass conspiracy from the old saying that the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. As you look over it, you look at your neighbours and they all seem to be having a much better time than you. Here is how he goes on. These three, the world, my heart and Satan, are plotting and scheming together to make me perpetually discontent. They are stubbornly determined to poison the joy I have in God and to deceive me into believing that I can find happiness somewhere other than God. They want me to dishonor God by gorging on the unsatisfying pleasures of the world instead of finding true joy and satisfaction in Christ. Anthony Selden, the former master of Wellington College, founded Action for Happiness in 2011. He's probably best known in this country, probably our best known happiness guru. And in an interview in the Times, he was asked if he was happy with what he had done with his life. And he paused for a while and he stumbled a bit over his words. And then he replied, I do find it very hard to accept that anything I've ever done is any good. I feel a kind of despair when I look back and think, well, I should have done much better. That's a sad sad answer for a happiness guru, isn't it? We come, as we said, to the end of our series today on Philippians. In the course of the last few weeks, we've seen what really mattered to Paul. From prison under house arrest in Rome, he wrote to the Philippians the key truths about following Jesus that he wanted to leave with them, and all under the banner of joy, which is why the series has been called A Life of Joy. That word, or its derivatives, occurs 16 times in this letter. Paul is saying that to follow Christ is to experience joy at the very deepest level, even when life is tough. Is that possible? Is that your experience as a Christian? Is that mine? Well, at the end of the letter, as I've said, we come to the idea of contentment. And Paul here shows us how to quote Altroga again. We can find contentment on our side of the fence. I want to highlight four points, and it actually starts, my first one, at the end of chapter 3. So if you look back there, you'll see Paul says this, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies 
so they will be like his glorious body. Here's my first point. True contentment comes from having the eternal perspective. True contentment starts from having the eternal perspective. Having an eternal perspective means, as we read in those verses, knowing that you have a saviour who died on the cross in your place to save you from the consequences of your sin, namely an eternity without God. Knowing, too, that he's given you eternal life, which started the moment... Now, lots of people think that eternal life starts when you die and go to heaven. Absolutely not. Eternal life starts the moment you give your life to Jesus Christ. And at that moment, as Jesus says in John 5, you cross from death to life. So although you may die physically, you will go on living spiritually and eternally. And from then on, you became a citizen of heaven... And this world no longer feels like home because our home is elsewhere. As we saw in chapter 2, verse 9, after Christ died, he rose again and God exalted him to the highest place in heaven where he is in control at this moment of all things in heaven and on earth. And whatever it may look like, as we read our papers today, as we look at the news, whatever it may look like, As our preacher said on Father's Day, the king is on the throne. And one day that king will come back and all will bow down before him. Again, you read this in chapter 2. Whether they acknowledged him in this life or not. At that time too, as we've just seen, the end of chapter 3, our bodies will be transformed and sin will be dealt with forever. You see, if you don't know that, If you've never known Christ as your saviour, you will never find true contentment. It starts with having the eternal perspective. Now we turn to chapter 4 and there's a rather amusing little passage where Paul shows his deep love for these people whom he's pastored. And he asks his true companion, whose identity we don't know, to help two women, his co-workers, Euodia and Syntyche, to solve their differences. Sadly, Christians fell out with each other, even in the early church. But now in verses 4 to 20, we come to the main part of the passage. And Paul continues on this theme of contentment. So secondly, true contentment comes from knowing how to pray so that all your anxieties are dealt with. Look at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Isn't that an amazing promise? First, there is a command. Rejoice always. Now, can that be right? Are we expected to rejoice when we've just had bad news? When we've lost our job? When we've lost somebody very dear to us? When nothing seems to be going well? Look at the end of that sentence. It says, rejoice in the Lord. In other words, whatever else is going on in your life, there is something you can always rejoice over. Namely, that if you've asked the risen Lord Jesus into your life, you are in him. He loves you more than you will ever know. In fact, the bad things in your life are not a sign he does not love you, though Satan would like you to think that. For God is good 
all the time. And as Charles and I learnt in Tanzania, God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. And you can know, and you can know that. You can stir yourself up, even in the very worst moments, to, as it were, shake your fist at Satan and say, I will rejoice. The prophet Habakkuk knew all about that. Listen to what he said in chapter 3. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet, he says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. Note that same determination. I will be joyful. When Charles had his minor heart attack, that uh, Psalm 16 came to mean a great deal to me. And I, I came across a verse there, verse 8, which I'd never really seen before. It says this, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. And I had this sense as he was lying in hospital, I had that sense that I was saying to Satan, I don't care what you're doing, I will not be shaken. And that's the feeling that is behind these verses. Now for the anxiety-relieving prayer. Start with thanksgiving. That God is all-powerful. That nothing is too hard for him. That he is good. That he has done amazing things for you in the past. That will raise your level of faith. Then and only then bring your anxieties to him. Whatever is making you anxious. Nothing is too small for you to bring to him. But don't just pour out your requests and rush off. This is what I used to do. Pouring them out and saying, thank you, God, off. I learned not very long ago to just stop. Take time to claim that promise in verse 7, that his peace will come. And when you've done that, you can relax, knowing the Lord is on your case. Now, I remember as a small child going into my father's study with a problem. And that amazing feeling that once I told him, Daddy would sort it out. I could relax. It would be all right. But you see, with God, it's more than that. What comes is supernatural peace. Peace at a time when it would not be natural to feel peaceful. It's peace that goes very deep, guarding your heart and your mind. Some of us may remember Chuck Colson, who was President Nixon's hatchet man. And uh, he was guilty of a lot of things, and he was indicted. And his lawyer said to him, don't worry, Chuck, plead not guilty, and I'll get you off. And in the course of waiting for the trial, through reading mere Christianity, Chuck Colson became a Christian. And he went to his lawyer the next day and said, I'm pleading guilty. I'm a Christian. I, I am guilty. And his lawyer said, you're mad. You know that will mean prison. Now, Chuck Colson was terrified of prison because he knew that in prison he would be a marked man. The whole of America knew about him and what he'd done. And he said, I don't care. I now follow Christ. I'm going to plead guilty. He did plead guilty. And there's a, we've got a book at home with a wonderful photograph of him with his wife and his PA sitting in the garden preparing his case. And the caption reads, Peace, Peace, Serenity. Now, there's an amazing end to that story in that he went to prison and started something called Prison Fellowship that has gone on all around the world and has brought many, many people into the kingdom. Now, we have our part to play in all of this. 
Paul said something like that in chapter 2 when he said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Our part can be found in verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Now here is the original positive thinking, fashionably rediscovered in the late 1990s as though it was something quite new. We need to guard our thought life. If we're continually filling our minds with all that is negative, dark, destructive, and ugly, it will affect our sense of well-being and contentment. It will make us more anxious, less able to see the sovereignty of God in the world. So, I speak to myself here, turn off the TV or the Netflix film that continually blasphemes, the radio program that endlessly snipes at Christians. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be informed about world events, but I am saying we don't need to constantly fill our minds with the thinking of those who reject Christ. Instead, fill them with all that Paul sets out here. Read biographies of inspiring Christians. Listen to glorious music or worship songs. Walk in the country or some of our great parks here in the city and listen to birdsong. And yes, you can hear birdsong in the city. We have a blackbird in the square who constantly sings at three in the morning because there's so many lights around, he thinks it's dawn. And similarly, don't take part in gossip that pulls people down. Be known as someone who always looks for the best in people. Be the person in your office at the school gates in the sports club who always has something positive to say, who's always cheerful. True contentment comes from knowing how to pray so all your anxieties are dealt with. Thirdly, true contentment comes from knowing that in Christ you have the strength to meet whatever life throws at you. Look at verses 10 to 13. Note it has nothing to do with circumstances, with all going well. You can have a problem with being content in any and every situation, whether you're well-fed or hungry, in plenty or in need. In other words, you can have everything and still be discontented. The discontented person is always complaining about their lot. You don't know what an unhappy childhood I had. I just haven't had the breaks in life that I deserved. My husband never helps at home. I don't say that about mine. The swimming pool is still not warm enough, and I can't get hold of the pool company to fix it. And when we Christians complain, as Stephen Altrocker says, we're loudly saying that the blessings of the gospel aren't enough. We're saying that the death of Christ isn't enough. We're saying that eternal fellowship with God, purchased at huge cost, isn't enough to satisfy our souls. We're saying that the forgiveness of sins and peace with with God is nice, but not that nice. The contented Christian can bring good out of any circumstance. We saw this in chapter 1. Some of the Christians were clearly worried that Paul's being in prison and had hindered his ministry. Not a bit of it. Look at If you turn back to chapter 1, look at what he says in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard, that's the emperor's guard, and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. It's an amazing statement. 
And when Paul hears later that others are preaching the gospel while he's under house arrest, out of envy and rivalry, and his disciples are saying to him, isn't that awful? He says, this is a great phrase, what does it matter? If you're a truly contented person, whenever bad things are happening, you can say, what does it matter? And he goes on, the important thing is that Christ is preached. And note it has to be learned to be content. I'm still learning, having to pull myself up when I'm tempted to crumble if things don't work out, as happened yesterday. And you can talk to Charles about this. When our internet went off midnight on Friday and didn't come back till midnight last night, and I was trying to write, type my talk, and I needed to get onto the internet. And I'm afraid I still have a lot to learn. So what is the secret of contentment? The secret is to rely on the power that comes from being united to Christ. The Greek word here for strength has the same root as our word dynamite. Paul uses a similar word in Ephesians 1 when he talks about resurrection power. And nor is it just for super leaders like Paul because it's not about Paul's strength but Christ's. Any Christian, any one of us here can draw from that dynamite power. I'm not sure that we really realize what's being said here. Resurrection power is available for every single Christian, and there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that need defeat you and me if we draw on Christ's strength. The contented Christian knows that with God, the impossible becomes possible. And finally, true contentment comes from knowing that God will meet all our needs. Look at verse 19 at the end of chapter 4. My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. The discontented person feels they never have enough. However useful a gift they're given, it's never right. They're perfectionists. However special a birthday someone organizes for them, it's never quite what they wanted. And they worry about their needs. Will the children get to the right school? Will their friends be around to help if they hit a crisis? Will they have enough money in old age? The contented Christian knows they serve a wonderfully generous God. And here's one of my favorite verses where Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 9, 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. In Christ, we can have everything. Freedom from anxiety, Strength to meet whatever life throws at us. A God who knows and will meet our every need. Above all, an eternity to look forward to of unimaginable glory. A life of joy indeed, the source of true contentment. Now, if there's anyone here who's never actually asked Christ into their lives to be their saviour, can I urge you to do that? Have a word with Charles or with Guy or with a Christian friend. Nothing could be more important in your life than to do that. Following Christ has been for me the greatest adventure and there's still lots of adventures to come. Our final hymn, which we're going to sing now, looks to the glorious future in heaven that awaits every Christian. The words are on your service sheet. Let's stand to sing, There is a Higher Throne.